0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show.
1: to find out if it's right for you. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout.
0: Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at
1: shopify.com slash records.
0: Hi, welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the theories surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. This is my third podcast, so I'm still finding my footing in the podcast world. I appreciate anyone who has listened to the previous ones. I'm really enjoying doing it, and it's something I've wanted to do for a really long time, so this is really exciting for me. Honestly, even seeing that one person has listened is thrilling, and hopefully in the future I'll get some more listeners. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends. If you'd like to discuss a case or leave me some feedback, contact me on the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page or on Twitter at redrum. I'd love to hear suggestions for future cases. This week I'm going to discuss the Texas Eyeball Killer. I first heard about this case on Forensic Files. I sometimes can't wait until the weekend so I can watch a Forensic Files marathon. I find some of the more gruesome cases more interesting and this one definitely fit the bill. There's something about eyeballs that makes me really queasy. I love horror movies, but the minute I see a tooth or a nail being pulled out or an eyeball being taken out, I have to turn my head. That's just one thing I can't handle. I think I'm the antithesis to this killer. Before I delve into the case, I want to credit where I got some of my info. Normally, I do a lot of research on the internet. And for this case, I watched a few older shows, that are now only available on YouTube. All of them feature reporter Skip Hollinsworth. He was a journalist for Texas Monthly and is the go-to guy for Texas true crime. I get so excited when I'm watching a crime story that is in Texas and he comes on the screen. He's very knowledgeable, charming, and articulate. I wish he had his own show or podcast. It's gotten to the point where I recognize his voice without even looking at the screen. So check out some of his stories, he's a great writer, he has a book out now, and he wrote an article for Texas Monthly on this case that was a great resource. I'll refer to him quite a few times. Watching these couple of shows and reading Skip's article really cleared up a lot of questions I had while doing my research, since I found some conflicting stories online. This takes place in the early 90s in an area of southern Dallas, Texas called Oak Cliff, At this time, Dallas was one of the most dangerous cities in America, with an average of two murders a day being committed. In 1991, there were over 500 homicides. The area of Oak Cliff was overrun by abandoned houses, gangs, drugs, and sex workers. The sex workers were practically on every corner. They weren't high-class girls, they were low-level, and they worked to support their drug habits, the drug of choice being crack. They would service as many as 10 to 20 men a day just to support their drug habits. It was a rough life, which often involved physical abuse. They endured the usual jumping bad, which is beatings from the client. When the body of one sex worker named Mary Pratt was found on December 13th, 1990, police assumed it was just a typical dead body. 33-year-old Mary was found on the side of the road in a residential area of Oak Cliff. She was left sprawled out in an unflattering position, wearing only a t-shirt and bra, which had been pushed up over her breast. She had suffered a beating. There were bruises on her face and chest. Worst of all was a four-to-four caliber bullet wound to her head. Mary mainly worked out of the Star Hotel. She didn't have the usual flair for clothing that some of her fellow workers had. She preferred to dress in jeans and t-shirts, Mary was around 156 pounds. So, on a side note, I'd have to say I hate how most articles refer to her as large or overweight. To me, this is just your average-sized woman. She would sometimes go home to her parents' house to stay after a night of work. I read that she was a mother, too, but I can't get solid confirmation on that. No one in the neighborhood had anything to contribute to the police about the murder. One well, neighbor said they thought they heard a car door shut and drive away, but that was about it. Mary's case was given to homicide detective John Westfallen at the Dallas Police Department. It was considered a dumped body case. He and his partner Stan McNear didn't expect it to be an easy solve. They accompanied the body when it was sent to forensic pathologist Elizabeth Peacock for the autopsy. It started out as a routine examination of a girl from that area. Track marks covered her arms. But then Peacock went to examine her eyes for the eye collar on the autopsy report. To her horror, she found the eyeballs were missing. She said there was no disruption of the eyelids overlying the eye sockets. Skip Hollinsworth noted the eyeballs were cut so precisely that they had to get the knife underneath the eyelids and cut the six major muscle groups that connected the eyeball to the socket, and then shut the eyes in such a way that you couldn't even tell there was scarring. There was no sign of bleeding on the eyes. Clearly, this was no longer the usual homicide from this area. A rape kit was done, but no semen was found. The only discovery were some foreign hairs. The only tip that police had was that Mary Pratt was close to a fellow sex worker named Susan Peterson. It was said they would rob houses and businesses of customers. Peterson, however, would not admit to any of this out of fear of prosecution, so the case went cold. That was until the morning of February 10th, 1991, when the body of Susan Peterson was found. The body was dumped in the same residential area but in a slightly different jurisdiction. Susan's body was splayed out much like Mary Pratt's, it was nearly nude with the shirt pulled up over her breasts. This time, Susan had been shot three times, the top of the head, the left breast, and point blank in the back of the head. One bullet had pierced her heart, another her brain. An empty condom package was found near the body. Two beat cops that worked the area were John Matthews and Regina Smith. They were very familiar with all the girls in the area. They remembered Susan Peterson as a very tough woman. She was very protective of her area with other sex workers and had even cursed out the police when they approached her. Before she turned to this kind of work, Susan was an ensign in the US Navy, so this could account for her tough skin. Matthews and Smith knew that if she could be taken down, then they had a very savvy killer on their hands. Just like Mary Pratt, Susan Peterson's body was taken to the same medical examiner, Elizabeth Peacock, for the autopsy. And once again, to her shock, the eyeballs were missing. Since the body was found in a different jurisdiction, it fell into the hands of Dallas County Sheriff Department Detective Larry Oliver. He conferred with Detective John Westfallen, who had worked on Mary Pratt's case. They determined they had a serial killer on their hands. It was time to call in the FBI to create a profile of their killer. So here's what they came up with. He would be a white male, mid-30s, most likely a resident of the area, well-respected and fit, owner of a model pickup truck. I don't quite know how they came up with the whole model pickup truck thing, but there it is. He would be a sexual sadist who displayed the bodies to send a message. Flyers were posted in the area to warn women of the murders. However, the detail of missing eyeballs was left out for fear of creating a panic. That was until a detective leaked the details of the facial mutilations to the press. The media dubbed the killer the Dallas Ripper and the collectionist. It created a media frenzy. Police immediately began staking out hotels and checking out license plates of John's. The women who had been killed were both white, leaving the black sex workers to think that they were in the clear. But that was until March of 91, when the third victim was found. The naked body of 41-year-old Shirley Williams was found in front of an elementary school. Shirley was a part-time sex worker at night, a maid throughout the day. She supported an awful crack addiction. And she was black, unlike the other victims who were white. According to profilers, it's very rare for a white offender to actually jump the race barrier. However, it's not unusual for a black offender. This made everyone nervous. Shirley had had her eyes removed, but this time the job wasn't as precise. There were extra cuts on her face, and the tip of an exacto knife was found in her upper cheekbone. This time the job had been done in a hurry or frenzied state. Examiners recovered some foreign hairs on the body. Hearing all of this made detective Regina Smith think back to a couple of stories she'd heard from working girls. A 17-year-old worker named Brenda White told her a harrowing story. She was picked up by a man driving a station wagon. She wanted to do business at a hotel. He insisted on taking her to a rental property that he had owned. When she refused, he be- began to choke her, yelling, I hate whores. She maced him and made her getaway. She described him as a middle-aged man with white hair. Detectives Matthew and Smith then recalled two odd encounters they'd had with one woman named Veronica Rodriguez. They'd seen her working on the street one day when they noticed some cuts on her face and neck. She told them of how she'd been attacked by a customer. A few days later, they approached a tractor trailer with two occupants, one was Veronica. She pleaded with the officers not to arrest the man in the truck for he was the one who had saved her when she was attacked. The man was Axton Speedy Schindler. The night she was attacked she ran to his house. They let Schindler go but jotted down his address, 1035 El Dorado Street. Detectives went to Veronica to revisit her story of the night she was attacked. This time she went into more detail. Veronica said she was with Mary Pratt. This was the first victim. They were hired to work a threesome with a customer. They worked in a vacant field. After they were finished, Veronica dressed. She said she witnessed Mary and the man arguing. Then he shot Mary in the head. So Veronica ran barefoot across the field, hiding in a drainage pipe. She then ran to a nearby home. It was that of Axton Schindler at 1035 El Dorado Street. Her attacker was a middle-aged man with salt-and-pepper hair who drove a pickup truck. Detective Regina Smith had just made note of the address and was going to confer with a co-worker, Walter Cook. Cook was on the phone when she overheard him say the same address, 1035 El Dorado Street. A confidential informant had called saying they thought they knew the killer. They described him as having a fetish for exacto knives. He was identified as 57-year-old Charles Albright, and he owned the property at 1035 El Dorado Street. So here's a little background on him. Charles Albright was born in Amarillo, Texas, on August 10, 1933. A few days after his birth, he was adopted by Dell and Fred Albright, His father was a grocer and his mother was a former school teacher turned stay-at-home mother. Dell was very overprotective. She even kept a goat in the backyard because she thought goat's milk would be better for her little boy. She insisted that he learn. He had piano lessons every day. She was also very strict. If her son refused to nap, he was tied to his bedpost. As strict as she was, she was never abusive. And due to her tutoring, Albright skipped two grades in school. The two really bonded over their mutual love of taxidermy. After Charles Albright took a course, he and Dell would work on small animals that they found dead in the neighborhood. It was something they both really enjoyed. But when it came time for the eyes, they disagreed. Dell was very frugal. The taxidermy eyes were too expensive, in her opinion. She simply grabbed buttons from her sewing box to place on the animals instead. Charles, however, was fascinated by the eyes at the taxidermist shop. He would reportedly run his fingers over them and wonder. In his early teens, he got arrested for some petty theft and aggravated assault. At age 15, he graduated early from high school and then enrolled in North Texas University to study to be a doctor. He took pre-med, but he didn't complete it probably a good thing since he had forged documents to actually enter school. At age 16, police caught him with petty cash from a register, two handguns, and a rifle, which resulted in one year in jail. After his release from jail, he entered Arkansas State Teachers College. He was popular and a known jokester. After his roommate broke up with his girlfriend, Charles cut the eyes from all of his roommate's pictures of her and pasted them to the ceiling. College didn't last long. He was expelled when he was found with some stolen items. In addition to that, he had falsified his degrees, forged signatures, and gave himself fictitious bachelor's and master's degrees. He ended up marrying his college girlfriend and having a daughter with her. It wasn't long before that went south, and he was caught forging checks. He was placed on probation. The couple divorced in 1974. The trouble continued. He served six months for stealing from a hardware store. After stealing hundreds of dollars of merchandise, Albright received a two-year prison sentence. He only served six months. Dell seemed very disappointed in her son. He'd been in and out of jail and couldn't seem to keep a job.
1: How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: He'd been everything from a carpenter, painter, to a beautician known as Mr. Charlie. Finally, in 1981, Dell passed away. Albright became active in an East Dallas church and made friends with a family of a nine-year-old girl. The couple found out that Albright had been sexually abusing her. They reported him and he pled guilty. He later recanted saying he only pled guilty to avoid a hassle. The family didn't want to put the daughter through testifying, so he received probation. In 1985, he met widow Dixie Austin, and convinced her to move in with him. Dixie was the breadwinner of the family, working in a gift shop. Albright was living off rental properties left to him after the death of his father. He would deliver newspapers in the early morning so he could frequent sex workers while Dixie was at work. He was well known with the girls in the area. Some said he was friendly. They trusted him. He would pay for their meals when they were hungry and sometimes for their drugs. Others said he had a different side. Quite a few said he tied them up, beat them, and was rough during sex. Police were putting together all these facts. He fit the profile. He had two cars, one a white pickup truck. He owned two rental properties near where two of the bodies were dumped. However, he denied ever frequently frequenting or knowing any sex workers. However, when Brenda White was shown his photo, she identified him as the man who attacked her in the station wagon. Veronica Rodriguez was shown six photos of suspects. When she came to Albright's photo, she cried and shook, physically terrified. Having seen the murder of Mary Pratt, she was the best witness. But Veronica was a well-known drug addict. Most described her as brain fried. She just wasn't reliable. Their best hope was a search of his residence. The FBI found a hidden cache of guns, the same brand of condoms found near the bodies, and a large collection of exacto knives. There were books about serial killers. But on a side note, if I ever get arrested for murder, I'm in trouble because of the books I own. The creepiest discovery were the eyeless masks of his own design. Authorities were taken off guard because Albright willingly let him search the house. The most interesting find were hairs found in his vacuum bag, and they were very similar to the ones found on Shirley Williams. Tina Connolly was working with Shirley Williams the night she was killed. It was raining, so Tina decided to call it a night. Desperate for money, Shirley wanted to keep working. Tina loaned her her raincoat she was wearing. She saw Shirley get into a white pickup truck. The body was found the next day, but it was obvious she was killed elsewhere. Tina took police to the field where Shirley took her clients. They found the raincoat still on the ground. It was covered in Shirley's blood. They also found hair, but could not immediately identify it. It wasn't human. They also found it wasn't cat or dog. After about a week, they discovered it was squirrel. T- Pale hair, the same type of hair that was found in the vacuum bag from Albright's home. The night of Shirley's murder, Albright left the raincoat, but he picked up his own coat from the ground, also picking up the squirrel hair. After getting home, he vacuumed, picking the hair up off the ground. When the bag was searched, the match was made. Albright was arrested and put into a squad car by Matthews and Smith. Matthews recalls looking at him in the rearview mirror and seeing only darkness in his eyes. At the station, he encountered a friend from his senior softball team, forensic analyst Irving Stone. Albright was a very popular member of the close-knit team. He was regarded as happy-go-lucky and well-liked. The only odd incident the members recall was when two girls drove up near the field. The other guys teased Albright and urged him to go, quote, get some. He became enraged, yelling, I hate whores. I would kill them all. He later apologized to his teammates, explaining that he suspected that his birth mother was a sex worker, and he was very sensitive about the subject. Still, Irvingston was surprised that day to see his teammate handcuffed and shackled. He was even more surprised when Albright threw open his arm, saying, Irv, give me a hug. Irving simply walked in the other direction in disgust. Albright maintained that he was innocent. In fact, he tried to blame his tenant, Axton Schindler, for the killings. He insisted he had never been with a sex worker. Since most of the evidence against him was circumstantial, he was only charged with the murder of Shirley Williams. The guns that were found didn't match the ones that killed Marion Susan but his pubic hair matched that of the hair found on Shirley's body. His trial began on December 13, 1991. It only took the jury a few days before they found him guilty in the death of Shirley Williams. He is currently serving five years to life. He still maintains his innocence. The eyeballs of his victims were never found. And his obsession continues to this day. Reportedly, there are drawings of eyes taped to the walls of his cell. Many who have studied him think he's genetically messed up. They don't feel he was the victim of any sexual or physical abuse. So maybe that's why Dell was so strict with him. Maybe she sensed something was wrong with the boy. Regardless, it's a very creepy case. So that's my third podcast. I thank everybody for listening. If you do want to contact me, check out my Facebook page, Red Rum Blonde. Or check me out on Twitter at Blonde Red Rum. I'd really appreciate any kind of feedback. And I kind of need ideas for future cases. i kind of on the fence about whether to keep going with kind of less known cases or Go with maybe some heavy hitters. So I'd really appreciate any suggestions. Thanks for listening.